recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christodinia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, September 22nd, 2012. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present part three of the Mark Weber article from 1981 that we've been covering here entitled President Roosevelt's Campaign to Incite War in Europe, so, the Secret Polish Documents. Just to recap our disclaimer, this was at a time when Mark Weber... Was in the program, maybe? No. Okay, go on. I just want to say as a disclaimer, the, to recap our disclaimer from Program 1, this was before Mark Weber went off the deep end, so this is a decent article that we've pretty much vetted. Well, well, yeah, we disclaimed this document at the beginning of the of the um, of the series, and and Mark Weber in 1981 seems not to have been the sellout that he is today. It's a shame that today Mark Weber has um, seemingly or, or ostensibly in pursuit of Mammon, he he has begun to discredit the value of Holocaust revisionism and actually accept many of the claims of the Jews that millions of Jews perished in World War II, claims which we know to be absolutely false, except for the power of the Jewish media and, and, and the, um, the ability to create facts from lies, which the Jewish media seems to have. And speculating on his motives will be outside the scope. Her website, I have to apologize. Carolyn Yeager's website is down right now. One of my Christogenia servers is down. It happens to be the one that also houses the sites of Clifton, Emma Heiser, and Carolyn Yeager. I'm waiting for a response from the company that hosts the server, and, and I'll have it back up as soon as possible. However, Carolyn Yeager on her site has done um, exposés of Mark Weber's current attitude concerning Holocaust revisionism and the um, supposed plight of Jews in, in, in National Socialist Germany. So far in this series, what we've um, discussed those parts of Mark Weber's article which talk about the media sensation which the German release of these Polish diplomatic documents had caused. We've also discussed um, or, or presented Mr. Weber's discussion of the authenticity of these documents and the content of the documents themselves. We've seen the, um, the treachery, what we've seen presented, and, and the documents serve as proof of the treachery of Franklin Roosevelt and his diplomat, his part Jewish Philadelphia banker diplomat William C. Bullitt in actually engineering and, and using um, Poland as the vehicle to do so, the start of the Second World War. It, it was planned by, and it was planned and it was instigated by the Roosevelt administration. And, and, and the documents go very far in, into um, supporting that thesis. Brian? Well, I just think it's fitting at the end of the war, Poland wound up occupied by Soviet communism, and they didn't get out from under it until the early 90s. So they, you know, no, no good deed goes unpunished. They thought they would help out the West get a war rolling against Germany, 
and instead of standing with their German neighbors, they lusted after their land, and they lost their 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 own nation for about seventy years as a result. And it couldn't have happened to a more deserving people. Well, well, right. Poland seems to have been rewarded in kind, right, for for her treatment of Germany in in the years leading up to the war. There's no doubt in my mind. There's a lot of evidence elsewhere that America's entry into World War II, or, or um, even before it was World War II, let's put it that way, that America's engineering of World War II was was um, was being conducted long before hostilities ever broke out. On the Mein Kampf Project website at Christagenia, there's a page, it's page 11 from volume 5, number 18, from the October 31st, 1938 issue of Life magazine. And this page has a headline, America gets ready to fight Germany, Italy, and Japan. And there's an article under the headline and, and a large picture of naval American Naval Admiral William D. Leahy in, in a war planning room scenario, obviously. And the article begins by bragging about the the um capacity that the ability of the for destruction of, of the new American battleships. And it's definitely, the article has a very threatening tone, and it's headlined, America Gets Ready to Fight Germany, Italy, and Japan. And this is October 1938, long before any hostilities broke out. Long before, outrage? Well, long before the German invasion of Poland, right? And long before all of the um, supposed causes of the war, which really weren't causes at all, because the war, that they were just really effects of the war and excuses to, to um, for, for America to enter it. If one, and, and, and I, I have a, a commentary on this picture, if one plans a robbery without actually having perpetrated it, the government calls it a conspiracy. This article in, in this 1938 Life magazine proves beyond all doubt that the Jewish-controlled media of the 1930s knew that war with Germany was being planned long before there was any actual hostility. The Anglo-American destruction of their German kindred compelled at the insistent instigation of the American Jews controlling the U.S. government and its usual financial stranglehold is one of history's biggest racial crimes. It's one of history's biggest crimes, period. And yet so few people open their eyes to this. So few people know about it. Most Americans would disbelieve the account, even no, no matter how properly it could be presented to them. And, and there's a lot of evidence in, in the pages of American media Prior to actual hostilities, which which broke out in 1939, there's a lot of evidence that that um, this war was being planned long before that. Well, Bill, also on the real quick, also on the front page of the Mein Kampf project at Christagenia is a graphic of a newspaper, which is actually a snapshot of the Honolulu Advertiser. The date on the newspaper is Monday, November 10th, 
1941, a month before Pearl Harbor Day, practically. And the headline of this paper is, Japanese may strike over weekend, as if Pearl Harbor could have possibly been a surprise. I'm sorry. Go on. There's some, here's a quote. Hitler will have no war. He does not want war, but we will force it on him, not this year, but soon. Email Ludwig Kuhn in Les and Allais. June 1934, quoted in the book The New Holy Alliance. Another quote, We Jews are going to bring a war on Germany. David Brown, National Chairman, United Jewish Campaign, 1934, quoted in I Testify Against the Jews by Robert Edward Edmondson, page 188, in The Jewish War of Survival by Arnold Lisi, page 52. We want to bring about a deep hatred for the Germans, for German soldiers, sailors, and airmen. We must hate until we win. Lord Beaverbroke. There is only one power which really counts, the power of political pressure. We Jews are the most powerful people on earth because we have this power and we know how to apply it. Vladimir Yabonetsky, Jewish Daily Bulletin, July 25, 1935. Here's another one. Before the end of the year, an economic bloc of England, Russia, France, and America will be formed to bring the German and Italian economic systems to their knees. Paul Dreyfus, Levy de Changer, May 15, 1938. And then another one, this declaration called the war against Germany, which was now determined on a holy war, this war was to be carried out against Germany to its conclusion, to her destruction. War in Europe in 1934 was inevitable. Henry Morgenthau, Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Here's a, here's a, a gem. Each of you, Jew and Gentile alike, who is not already enlisted in this sacred war, should do so now and here. It is not sufficient that you should buy no goods made in Germany. You must refuse to deal with any merchant or shopkeeper who sells any German goods or who patronizes German ships or shipping. We will undermine the Hitler regime and bring the German people to their senses by destroying their export trade on which their very existence depends. Samuel Untermeyer on the WABC radio broadcast, New York, August 6, 1933. That's 1933. Well, well, right. The Jews had been building up that they, they had been instigating war with Germany ever since the National Socialist Party took control of the country. From, from the very moment that the Weimar Republic ended, the Jews wanted war with Germany because basically the Jews had control of Germany in the Weimar Republic and lost it to National Socialism. They lost it to the German people, and they didn't like that. Well, if you're a thief and someone takes back what you've stolen from them, you're not going to be very happy, are you? They spent a lot of time and effort and energy stealing Germany from the Germans. And when the Germans asserted themselves and took it back, they weren't happy. Well, well we discussed Wilhelm Marr, who, who um, 60 years before the, before the end of the Weimar Repu- Republic had, had announced that Judaism was winning over Germanism. He announced that in the 1870s, right? He, he understood that the Jews were going, going to come to the control of Germany in the 1870s, 60 years before Adolf Hitler came to power. Well, during the middle of the war, here's a quote, We are not denying and are not afraid to confess that this war is our war and that it is being waged for the liberation of Jewry. Stronger than all fronts together is our front, that of Jewry, we are not only giving this war our financial support on which the entire war production is based. 
we are not only providing our full propaganda power, which is the moral energy that keeps this war going, the guarantee of victory is predominantly based on weakening the enemy forces, on destroying them in their own country within the resistance. And we are the Trojan horse in the enemy's fortress. Thousands of Jews living in Europe constitute the principal factor in the destruction of our enemy. There, our front is a fact and the most valuable aid for victory. Chaim Weissman, President of the World Jewish Congress, head of the Jewish Agency and later President of Israel, December 3, 1942, in New York. So this basically, I think at the time, people had to realize it was a Jewish war, didn't they? Well, well, you know, it, it's I have never in in my um, I've never in my memory heard any of my ancestors, my, my grandparents, my great grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, talk about any knowledge that the Second World War was Jewish, and that's the power of. The the, um, the propaganda machine, the Jewish propaganda machine that really started with um, Irving Berlin, uh, I believe. That, that's my personal opinion. Irving Berlin's music was so powerful and, and was so successful at melding the Jewish internationalist world agenda, the imperialist world agenda, with the, the idea of Americanism. And and that began in in World War One, in in the time of World War One. With his crappy pseudo patriotic songs. Well, well, right, absolutely, and and from that time, uh, I mean, Jewish internationalist imperialism and Americanism became practically synonymous, and and um, that that's my personal opinion, but the the power that the Jewish media. Monopoly had even in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s was phenomenal. But you you can't expect and and the unison the, the unison most of the media remember that the only major newspaper that stood against the the Roosevelt Jewish internationalist agenda was the Chicago Tribune. That that was the Colonel McCormick. That that was the only major newspaper, and the Jewish advertisers tried to the advertising agencies tried to destroy him for a long time. That that's the only newspaper that I can recall that stood against the, the only major newspaper that stood against the, the Roosevelt internationalist Jewish agenda. And I was going to say, um, you you can't expect people who are now in their 80s and who fought in the war. To come out and crap on what they what they consider the greatest accomplishment of their life, they think they made the world safe for democracy, and they'll go to their graves believing that, and they'll hate anybody with a righteous vengeance who tries to tell them otherwise. Well, well, as far as I can recall in in history and in my own personal experience, every every other major American media outlet was on the side of going to war against Germany and Japan and, and on the side of Roosevelt and, and basically the, the New York Jewish establishment, which is um, Frankfurter and, and, and um, Untermeyer and Bernard Baruch and the, the rest of those devils. Jacob Schiff, there's a never-ending list of them. Okay, now to the next part of this Mark Weber article, which is the path to war. We've discussed the documents, the content of the documents, the, the treachery of the diplomats, the promises made to Poland 
in the event of a war with Germany, make, all make it very clear that Roosevelt was actually egging Poland on, was instigating a war with Germany at the expense of Poland. Would you like to read or should I? The path to war. While the Polish documents alone are conclusive proof of Roosevelt's treacherous campaign to bring about world war, it is fortunate for posterity that a substantial body of irrefutable complementary evidence exists which confirms the conspiracy recorded in the dispatches to Warsaw. The secret policy was confirmed after the war with the release of a confidential diplomatic report by the British ambassador to Washington, Sir Ronald Lindsay. During his three years of service in Washington, the veteran diplomat had developed little regard for American leaders. He considered Roosevelt an amiable and impressionable lightweight and warned the British Foreign Office that it should not tell William Bullitt anything beyond what it wouldn't mind reading later in an American newspaper. That shows you then that Bullitt's an idiot who can't keep a secret, and if that is true, he has no place as a high-level diplomat, does he? Well, well, I don't think Bullitt really cared about diplomacy. It, it was all about Tanake. It was all about Jewish chutzpah. That, that's so, the way I look. He, he wasn't a statesman or a diplomat by any measure. He was just Roosevelt's guy on the ground there. Well, well right. He was a dealmaker, and, and, and he had an agenda, and he wanted to follow through the agenda. His agenda was to destroy Germany. On 19 September 1938, that is, a year before the outbreak of war in Europe, Roosevelt called Lindsay to a very secret meeting at the White House. At the beginning of their long conversation, according to Lindsay's confidential dispatch to London, Roosevelt, quote, emphasized the necessity of absolute secrecy. Nobody must know I had seen him, and he himself would tell nobody of the interview. I gathered not even the State Department, end quote. The two discussed some secondary matters before Roosevelt got to the main point of the conference. This is the very secret part of his communication, and it must not be known to anyone that he has even breathed a suggestion. The president told the ambassador that if news of the conversation was ever made public, it could mean his impeachment. And no wonder, what Roosevelt proposed was a cynically brazen but harebrained scheme to violate the U.S. Constitution and dupe the American people. The president said that if Britain and France, quote, would find themselves forced into war, end quote, against Germany, the United States would ultimately also join, but this would require some clever maneuvering. Britain and France should impose a total blockade against Germany without actually declaring war and force other states, including neutrals, to abide by it. Well, right there, if you attempt to enforce a blockade against my nation, it doesn't matter if you issue a formal declaration of war. You've, you've engaged in a de facto war by committing an act of war. Blockading a, a, a nation's harbors, that is an act of war. Wouldn't you say, Bill, that would have resulted in immediate war? Well, well it's, it's absolutely an act of war, but, but it shows that Franklin Roosevelt didn't care for law protocol, didn't care for, um, for, for, for justice or righteousness. He, only, he, he was running his office... The, the same way we see presidents in recent years run their offices, he, he's running his office as the figurehead of a major international crime ring. Uh, I mean, that's the way they act, right? And I'm, I'm sure if the French and British had tried to enforce a blockade on Germany, France would have been wiped off the map in a month or two, as historically happened, and the Luftwaffe would have done a lot of damage on the Royal Navy operating so close to German waters. Well, well the only shame is that Germany didn't win. 
This would certainly provoke some kind of German military response, but it would also free Britain and France from having to actually declare war. For propaganda purposes, the blockade must be based on the loftiest humanitarian grounds and on the desire to wage hostilities with minimum of suffering and the least possible loss of life and property, and yet bring the enemy to his knees. You know, Hitler addressed blockade warfare in a speech, and he said that blockade warfare is nothing but a war against women and children and other civilians in the rear because it denies them the food and the medicine and the essentials for life, and it does little to hinder military activity. Well, well, the truth is that we're getting way beyond where we should be. The the truth is that why is Germany the enemy in 1938? What have they done, and who have they done it to? So when Roosevelt is saying that Britain and France would find themselves forced to war, they're only being forced to war, though, by organized Jewish extremists in their own nations that are pushing them into a war for Zionism and Jewish interests. Germany did not force Britain and France into a war by any objective measure, did it? Roosevelt conceded that this would involve aerial bombardment, but bombing from the air was not the method of hostilities which caused really great loss of life. The important point was to call it defensive measures or anything plausible, but avoid actual declaration of war. That way, Roosevelt believed he could talk the American people into supporting war against Germany, including shipments of weapons to Britain and France, by insisting that the United States was still technically neutral in a non-declared conflict. This method of conducting war by blockade would, in his, Roosevelt's opinion, meet with approval of the United States if its humanitarian purpose were strongly emphasized, Lindsay reported. The American ambassador to Italy, William Phillips, admitted in his post-war memoirs that the Roosevelt administration was already committed to going to war on the side of Britain and France in late 1938. On this and many other occasions, Phillips wrote, I would like to have told him, Count Ciano, the Italian foreign, ministry, foreign minister, frankly, that in the event of a European war, the United States would undoubtedly be involved on the side of the Allies. But in view of my official position, I could not properly make such a statement without instructions from Washington, and these I never received. Well, if he were a man of character and quality, wouldn't he have just told Chiano anyway? I mean, who who are these diplomats that they're able to deal with Italian and German hosts for, you know, 18 months leading up to war? They know what Roosevelt's planning, and they don't inform their hosts. They don't say, oh, by the way, America's going to stab you in the back when you least expect it. They have lunch with these people. Maybe they go golfing. They hang out with them. They're invited to state functions on the behalf of their government or their host government. And yet they conceal all these crucial facts that the Roosevelt administration is planning a war. Well, well you're taking it for granted that diplomats are somehow dem- democratically elected or, or, or represent righteous. De- I, I mean, diplomats are political appointees, right? So these guys are all just political hacks, towing the line. Basically. Look at William C. Bullitt. Hmm. He's not a political hack. He was definitely a political He, he was a political hack for the... Um, the, the Northeast Jewish establishment, right? I mean, he, he, he was willingly on board with all that. It wasn't just he was trying to protect his career. He was a true believer. Carl J. Burkhart, the League of Nations High Commissioner of the Danzig, reported in his post-war memoirs on a remarkable conversation held at the end of 1938 with Anthony Drexel Biddle, the American ambassador to Poland. Biddle was a rich banker with close ties to the Morgan financial empire. Now, now that, that, that there's your that there's your ambassador, right? 
Uh, I mean, there's your typical massive thing. Anthony Drexel Biddle. I, I wonder, does he? Um, he sounds like a, a good Anglo-Irish American, doesn't he? <laughs> a thoroughgoing internationalist, he was an ideological colleague of President Roosevelt and a good friend of William Bullitt. Burkhart, a Swiss professor, served as High Commissioner between 1937 and 1939. Nine months before the outbreak of armed conflict, on 2nd December 1938, Biddle told Burkhart, with remarkable satisfaction, the Poles were ready to wage war over Danzig. They would counter the motorized strength of the German army with agile maneuverability. In April, yeah, yeah, of course, it's horses and wagons, right? <laughs> In April, he, Biddle, declared a new crisis would break out. Not since the torpedoing of the Lusitania in 1915 had such a religious hatred against Germany re- reigned in America as today. Chamberlain and Daladier the moderate British and French leaders, if you want to call them that, would be blown away by public opinion. This would be a holy war. Well, well, it was a holy war that started in 1933, right? Or it was a holy war that started at the beginning of time. Well, well yes, it was a holy war that started at the beginning of time. There's no doubt. It started back in Genesis 3.15. There, there's no doubt. But this, the, this stage of it was basically declared by Samuel Untermeyer in 1933, on behalf of New York Jewry, and and we see the culmination of it here. And there was a speech where Hitler said that because he has helped the German people to stand up and to reclaim what is theirs, and that they are denouncing the reparations payments in Versailles, that he's denounced as a reckless, warmongering, imperialist leader. And he said that if I had been willing to write them a blank check and say, gentlemen in Geneva, gentlemen in London, how many billions of Reichsmarks do you need, that they would you know, um, clap their hands together, applaud, and say, finally, a reasonable, moderate leader in Germany. And he said that basically what they want is the, the future, the lifeblood of the German nation. And since he's not willing to deliver it to them in a picnic basket, they're going to denounce him as a criminal and a warmonger. And they have it today, don't they? The, the bankers have the lifeblood of Germany forever, basically, today. They have it right now. And the Poles think that their army is agile and can maneuver. That's that's so comical. I, I just want to do a real quick joke here. How do you stop a Polish tank? And the answer is you shoot the guy pushing it. The fateful British pledge to Poland on 31 March 1939 to go to war against Germany in case of a Polish-German conflict would not have been made without strong pressure from the White House. On March 14, 1939, Slovakia declared itself an independent republic, thereby dissolving the state known as Czechoslovakia. That same day, Czechoslovak President Emil Hacha signed a formal agreement with Hitler establishing a German protectorate over Bohemia and Moravia, the Czech portion of the Federation. The British government initially accepted the new situation, but then Roosevelt intervened. In their nationally syndicated column of 14 April 1939, the usually very well-informed Washington journalists Drew Pearson and Robert S. Allen Allen, reported that on 16 March 1939, Roosevelt had sent a virtual ultimatum to Chamberlain demanding that henceforth the British government strongly oppose Germany. According to Pearson and Allen, who completely supported Roosevelt's move, The president warned that Britain could expect no more support, moral or material, through the sale of airplanes if the Munich policy continued. Chamberlain gave in, and the next day, 17 March, ended Britain's policy of cooperation with Germany in a speech at Birmingham, bitterly denouncing Hitler. Two weeks later, the British government formally pledged itself to war in case of German-Polish hostilities. 
Well, which were all virtually guaranteed by, by Franklin Roosevelt. Well, remember, when we read Hitler's declaration of war speech against the United States, one thing he pointed out was that the American president, a Freemason, Hitler recognized him as a Mason beholding the Jews, talks real loud about peace, but then involves himself in all the affairs of all the nations and interferes with their diplomacy and their negotiations. And instead of allowing situations to be resolved between the parties, he interjects and forces himself into the situation to make a, a resolution impossible, a peaceful resolution impossible. Well, so, well, Franklin Roosevelt ran for his third election on, on, on the platform that I will not send your sons to foreign wars, right? Isn't that what um, Wilson ran for his second term on, that he would keep us out of war? Yes, it is. And they were both outright lies. And, and they were both planned lies. At the time, we can't say that Roosevelt didn't anticipate you know, Pearl Harbor. and he, he really wanted to keep us out of the war. He was planning a war in 37-38. Yes, he was. And Wilson was planning a war a year before the election. Roosevelt had been planning a war before that. It just took him a long time to, to, to be able to pull it off. And I, I probably shouldn't say Wilson was planning a war. I should say his handlers were planning the war. He was a sock puppet, wasn't he? Bullitt's response to the creation of the German protectorate over Bohemia and Moravia was to telephone Roosevelt and in an almost hysterical voice urge him to make a dramatic denunciation of Germany and immediately ask Congress to repeal the Neutrality Act. In a confidential telegram to Washington dated 9 April 1939, Bullet reported from Paris on another conversation with Ambassador Lukaswitz. He had been told he had told the Polish envoy that although American law prohibited direct financial aid to Poland, it might be possible to circumvent its provisions. The Roosevelt administration might be able to supply warplanes to Poland indirectly through Britain. The Polish ambassador asked me if it might not be possible for Poland to obtain financial help and aeroplanes from the United States. Excuse me. I replied that I believed the Johnson Act would forbid any loans from the United States to Poland, but added that it might be possible for England to purchase planes for cash in the United States and turn them over to Poland. On 25 April 1939, four months before the outbreak of war, Bullock called American newspaper colonist Carl von Wiegand chief European correspondent of the International News Service to the U.S. Embassy in Paris and told him, War in Europe has been decided upon. Poland has the assurance of the support of Britain and France and will yield to no demands from Germany. America will be in the war soon after Britain and France enter it. In a lengthy secret conversation at Hyde Park... That that was actually printed by the Chicago Herald American October 8, 1944. And no one rose up over it. Uh, no, but but it's absolutely and and this is still six months before Germany invades um before Germany invades Poland, right? September first, nineteen thirty nine. Shouldn't this have resulted in impeachment of Roosevelt? In mid nineteen forty four. October nineteen forty four. Wasn't Roosevelt pretty much dead by then or, or damn close to it? Yeah, I mean, when did he? Uh, I don't remember exactly when he died. I'm, I'm at fault for not remembering exactly. I think exactly. he died three or four weeks before Germany surrendered. Okay, so so he lived another three or four months. Four. Or he five died months. April 12, 1945. 
Okay, six months. Okay. Okay, well, well, he should have been impeached, but it was politically impossible, right? Or at least he should have lost the election. If the Jewish media wants to make an issue. That's what we don't understand, is that, that the media only makes issues of the things it wants in order to manipulate the public opinion, right? I mean, like Watergate. Like, like, Obama, like Watergate's a good example. Yes, Watergate and, and Obama's birth certificate is totally ignored, right? His lack of, of birth certificate. That's totally ignored. It's even ridiculed by the media. Yet it's a very viable topic. Yet if, he, if Obama ever fails to play ball, they'll go into a full blitz, bring out the birth certificate business, and he'll be gone in a week, won't he? Well, look at Gary Hart. Gary Hart, Donna Rice, he had a little affair with this girl. Look, and look at all of the affairs Bill Clinton had. Bill Clinton has a string of affairs, and, and they're nothing to the media. And, and Gary Hart, uh, until, it was, uh, until it was convenient for the media to start mentioning Bill Clinton's affairs, which is years after he became president, right? Gary Hart is a, um, is a candidate for president. He has one skeleton in his closet, evidently, Donna Rice, and the media just blows it right out of proportion. If they'd have done the same thing to Bill Clinton and they had every opportunity to do so, he would have never been president. But the media, for some reason, wanted Bill Clinton to be the president. So they ignored all of his affairs. They ignored a whole chain of skeletons in the closet. And, and Bill Clinton was elected. It, it's The media promotes that they manipulate public thought by promoting the, the news stories that meet their agenda and ignoring the ones that don't advance their agenda. It's real simple. I mean, it's very easy to observe in everyday life. In a lengthy secret conversation at Hyde Park on 28 May 1939, Roosevelt assured the former president of Czechoslovakia, Dr. Edvard Benz, that America would actively intervene on the side of Britain and France in the anticipated European war. In June 1939, Roosevelt secretly proposed to the British that the United States would establish a patrol over the waters of the Western Atlantic with a view of the de denying them to the German Navy in the event of war. I wonder, when the American people... Again, it's, uh, again it's, almost, it's over three months before, before Germany's invasion of Poland, which, the, if you listen to the media today, the cause of World War II was Germany's invasion of Poland. That, that is always listed as the, the, the primary card that I've seen of, of the Second World War. And, and it's, simply, it's simply Jewish propaganda, right? The, this um, conversation with Edvard Benes happened in May of 1939, and, and it was printed in his memoirs in 1954. And what were the American people doing while these so-called neutrality patrols were going on? Sitting back and enjoying the good times. Well, well, they saw jobs, right? I mean, the Jews had the country in an artificial depression for ten years, and 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 people saw jobs. They saw bread and circuses and didn't care about anything else, right? That, that's the way I look at it. it. It might be unfair to say that, but that's what I see. They, so, the people saw jobs. They saw jobs in the armaments industry. They saw jobs in the shipyards. That they, they, 
Yet, you know, the country has no money for 10 years. There's no industry because there's a money crunch. And all of a sudden, well, when it comes time to go to war with Germany, all of a sudden there's plenty of money in the economy. There's plenty of jobs. People don't see the Jewish treachery behind that, right? And the Federal Reserve basically caused the Depression, didn't it? Well, well the Depression was definitely engineered. The best um, illustration I've seen of it is in A. Ralph Epperson's The Unseen Hand, where he simply tracks the money supply and, and shows the money supply for, for a 10-year or 12-year period through the 1920s and, and how money got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and, and more and more people were speculating on debt. It, it's like the dot-com bubble or the real estate bubble all over again. Credit was loose and money, money was cheap, meaning interest rates were low. There, were ton, there was much more money in the economy than there should have been and all of a sudden, they just pulled the rug out from under it. And maybe later, we should read a speech by um, Louis T. McFadden, who was a Pennsylvania Republican who denounced the Federal Reserve and tried to warn that Jews were hijacking the Republican Party in the 30s until he died in the hospital at age 60. Well, well we should think about some programs in the future on, on um, Louis McFadden, Hamilton Fish, who's going to be mentioned in this article, on Huey Long, that there were some, and most of them ended up dead, right? That there were some patriotic America First senators and congressmen in the years of the Roosevelt administration, that without a doubt. Most of them, as I said, and most of the serious challengers ended up dead. Under very suspicious or discredited, whatever. There's a list of them, right? There's a short list, but there is a list of them. Would you like to um, take over the Poland article? We're up to in June 1939. In June 1939, Roosevelt secretly proposed to the British that the United States should establish a patrol over the waters of the Western Atlantic with a view to denying them to the German Navy in the event of war. Well, well that's an act of war in itself, right? That's guaranteeing that there's a war. The British Foreign Office record of this offer noted that although the proposal was vague and woolly and open to certain objections, we assented informally as the patrol was to be operated in our interests. So Britain is assenting to Roosevelt's act of war. That's a bellicose act. Many years after the war, Georges Bonnet, the French foreign minister in 1939, confirmed Bullitt's role as Roosevelt's deputy in pushing his country into war. In a letter to Hamilton Fish, dated 26th of March, 1971, Bonnet wrote, One thing is certain is that Bullitt, in 1939, did everything he could to make France enter the war. An important confirmation of the crucial role of Roosevelt and the Jews in pushing Britain into war comes from the diary of James V. Forrestal, the first U.S. Secretary of Defense in his entry for December 27, 1945. He wrote, Play golf today with former Ambassador Joe Kennedy. I asked him about his conversations with Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain from 1938 on. He said Chamberlain's position in 1938 was that England had nothing with which to fight and that she could not risk going to war with Hitler. 
Kennedy's view that Hitler would have fought Russia without any later conflict with England and all of Adolf Hitler's statements support that idea, right? If it had not been for William Bullitt's urging on Roosevelt in the summer of 1939 that the Germans must be faced down about Poland, neither the French nor the British would have made Poland the cause of war if it had not been for the constant needling from Washington, which came from the Jews in New York, right? Bullitt said, Bullitt, he said, kept telling Roosevelt that the Germans wouldn't fight, Kennedy that they would, and that they would overrun Europe. Chamberlain, he says, stated that America and the world Jews had forced England into the war. In his telephone conversations with Roosevelt in the summer of 1939, the president kept telling him to put some iron up Chamberlain's backside. Roosevelt making a typical um, Jewish suggestion, right? Well, isn't this what the, um, the um, charge that Hitler said that Roosevelt is interfering in the diplomatic negotiations of other countries and agitating towards war? And here we see from former ambassadors and, and secretaries of defense, though those allegations, those charges are absolutely true, aren't they? Roosevelt is sending out his agents to provoke war. All of the, um, the statements that Weber puts together here fully vindicate Adolf Hitler's speeches and, and all of his accusations in 1936, 37, 38, 39 that international Jewry was dragging Germany into another world conflagration. Yes, there's no doubt. When Ambassador Pataki was back in Warsaw on leave from his post in Washington, he spoke with Count John Zembeck, the Polish Foreign Ministry Undersecretary, about the growing danger of war. In his diary entry of July 6, 1939, Zembeck recorded Pataki's astonishment at the calm mood in Poland in comparison with the war psychosis that had gripped the West. I'm sorry. Poland seemed like a rest home. In the West, the ambassador told Zembeck, there are all kinds of elements openly pushing for war. The Jews, the super capitalists, I'm trying to think if there's a distinction there, the arms dealers, I still don't see a distinction. Today they are all ready for a great business because they have found a place which can be set on fire, Danzig and a nation that is ready to fight, Poland. They just weren't ready to fight for long. They want to do business on our backs. They are indifferent to the destruction of our country. Indeed, since everything will have to be rebuilt later on, they can profit from that as well. On the 24th of August, 1939, just a week before the outbreak of hostilities, Chamberlain's closest advisor, Sir Horace Wilson, went to Ambassador Kennedy with an urgent appeal from the British Prime Minister for President Roosevelt, regretting that Britain had unequivocally, unequivocally obligated itself in March to Poland in case of war, and we see that Roosevelt did that perhaps um, two years before, right? Chamberlain now turned in despair to Roosevelt as a last hope for peace. That, that's incredible. Chamberlain seems to be totally out of the loop, right? He wanted the American president to put pressure on the Poles to change 
course at this late hour and open negotiations with Germany. By telephone, Kennedy told the State Department that the British felt that they could not, given their obligations, do anything of this sort, but that we could. Presented with this extraordinary opportunity to possibly save the peace of Europe, Roosevelt rejected Chamberlain's desperate plea out of hand. Of course, Roosevelt openly wanted war, and he openly wanted it for quite some time. At that, Kennedy reported, the prime minister lost all hope. Now, now Chamberlain is often today blamed for being soft on Hitler, right? I mean, we hear that all the time. Chamberlain let Hitler get away with this and let Hitler get away with that. The futility of it all, Chamberlain had told Kennedy, is the thing that is frightful. After all, we cannot save the Poles. We can merely carry on a war of revenge that will mean the destruction of all Europe. And Chamberlain actually sincerely wanted peace, and he is, to this day, the Jewish media punching bag, right? Roosevelt liked to present, to present himself to the American people and the world as a man of peace. To a considerable degree, that is still his image today. But Roosevelt cynically rejected genuine opportunities to act for peace when they were presented. In 1938, he refused to answer requests by French Foreign Minister Bonnet on the 8th and 12th of September to consider arbitrating the Czech-German dispute. And a year later, after the outbreak of war, a melancholy Ambassador Kennedy beseeched Roosevelt to act boldly for peace. That would be 
Well, well, the truth is that Hitler made many good peace offers to the English people, right? Infuriated at Kennedy's stubborn efforts to restore a peace in Europe or at least limit the conflict that had broken out, Roosevelt instructed his ambassador with a personal and strictly confidential telegram on September 11, 1939, that any American peace effort was totally out of the question. The Roosevelt government, it declared, sees no opportunity nor occasion for any peace move to be initiated by the President of the United States. The people, sick of the United States, would not support any move for peace initiated by this government that would consolidate or make possible a survival of a regime of force and aggression. So, so they were misportraying National Socialist Germany from a very early time. Hamilton Fish warns the nation. Hamilton Fish was a republic. Well, it's going to, the article is going to tell us that. In the months before armed conflict broke out in Europe, perhaps the most vigorous and prophetic American voice of warning against President Roosevelt's campaign to incite war was that of Hamilton Fish, a leading Republican congressman from New York, New York City. In a series of hard-hitting radio speeches, I think he was from New York City, in a series of hard-hitting radio speeches, Fish rallied considerable public opinion against Roosevelt's deceptive war policy. Here are only a few excerpts from some of those addresses. On the 6th of January, 1939, this is 10 months before Hitler, 11, 10 months before Hitler, no, I'm sorry, nine months before Hitler invades Poland. On the 6th of January, 1939, Fish told a nationwide radio audience, the inflammatory and provocative message of the president to Congress and the world, given on January 4th, has unnecessarily alarmed the American people and created together with a barrage of propaganda emanating from high New Deal officials, a war hysteria, dangerous to the peace of America and the world. The only logical conclusion to such speeches is another war fought overseas by American soldiers. Nine months before Hitler invades Poland. All the totalitarian nations referred to by President Roosevelt haven't the faintest thought of making war on us or invading Latin America, what which it was purposely rumored by the Jewish media that Adolf Hitler would do, right? I do not propose to mince words on such an issue affecting the life, liberty, and happiness of our people. The time has come to call a halt to, to the warmongers of the New Deal backed by war profiteers, communists, and hysterical internationalists who want us to quarantine the world with American blood and money. He, this is still the words of Hamilton Fish, he, meaning Roosevelt, evidently desires to whip up a frenzy of hate and war psychosis as a red herring to take the minds of our people off their own unsolved domestic problems. He visualizes hobgoblins, and he creates in the public mind a fear of foreign invasions that exists only in his own imagination. Well, if Latin America was under threat from anybody, it would probably be the Soviet Union. Wouldn't you agree, Bill, that there's no, there's no basis in fact for the idea of Germany invading the Western Hemisphere? No, but there was a lot of communist agitation. 
On March 5th, Fish spoke to the country over the Columbia Radio Network. This is six months before Hitler invades Poland, right? Or, or is it seven? I can't add tonight for some reason. The people of France and Great Britain want peace, but our warmongers are constantly inciting them to disregard the Munich Pact and resort to the arbitrament of arms. If only we would stop meddling in foreign lands, the nations of old Europe would compose their own quarrels by arbitration and the process of peace. But apparently, we won't let them. And, and that was true. Fish addressed the listeners of the National Broadcasting Company Network, NBC, on April 5th with these words. The youth of America are again being prepared for another bloodbath in Europe in order to make the world safe for democracy. If Hitler and the Nazi government regain Memel or Danzig, taken away from Germany by the Versailles Treaty, and where the population is 90% German, why is it necessary to issue threats and denunciations and incite our people to war? I would not sacrifice the life of one American soldier for a half dozen Memels or Danzigs. We repudiated the Versailles Treaty, because it was based on greed and hatred, and as long as its inequalities and injustices exist, there are bound to be wars of liberation. Uh, of course, the American government did officially repudiate Versailles and, and never did anything to enforce it, right? But now they're upholding it because it's politically expedient to do so for international jury, it seems. The sooner certain provisions of the Versailles Treaty are scrapped, the better for the peace of the world. I believe that if the areas that are distinctly German in population are restored to Germany, except Alsace, Lorraine, and the Tyrol. Now let me say that Adolf Hitler explicitly gave up claims to Alsace, Lorraine, and to the Tyrol. He explicitly ceded in his political and, and geographical ambitions. He ceded any intention of regaining Alsace-Lorraine and the Tyrol for Germany. Because he it would have meant war with France, and he didn't want that. He didn't want war with France, and he didn't want... The Tyrol would have meant war with Italy, and he didn't want war with Italy. He ceded any claim to the Tyrol. I'm probably mispronouncing it. It probably should be Tyrol, right? He, he ceded any claim to that. It's it stated in Mein Kampf. He states it explicitly in Mein Kampf that, that he wouldn't get, you know, try to um, take the Tyrol from Italy. I'm fairly certain that he did, and, and, and that he wouldn't try to take Alsace-Lorraine from France. He, he wanted the Rhineland back under the full control of Germany, where it was basically a, a demilitarized zone during the Weimar Republic. It, it was not fully under German control, and I believe there may have been French troops placed there for, for some time. Now, the, the French troops did invade the Saarland. Remember the, um, the, the Saarland? Right. He wanted the Saarland back, and he got it by plebiscite, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, the French occupied the Saarland again after World War II until 1956. So France has a history of imposing very Carthaginian peace treaties on Germany, despite the fact that France has never really won a great victory over Germany. They just happen to be on the side that ultimately wins. In World War I and World War II, they kick the Germans around, treat them like dirt, 
where look what happened with the um, the Franco-Prussian War. The Germans decisively crushed the French, and all they did was they took Alsace-Lorraine, which was majority ethnic German and German-speaking. They could have annexed the whole country of France, couldn't they, or stripped France of its overseas colonies? Well, well right, and Alsace-Lorraine is clearly German. It, it was clearly German in nature. I, I mean, for, for centuries, Goethe was from Alsace-Lorraine. It, it, it was... So some of the greatest German schools were in Alsace-Lorraine. It was clearly German in nature and belonged with Germany. I believe that if the areas that are distinctly German in population are restored to Germany, except Alsace-Lorraine and the Tyrol, which Hitler ceded, right, there will be no war in Western Europe. There may be a war between the Nazis and the communists, but if there is that, it is not our war or that of Great Britain or France or any of the democracies. And I think Hamilton Fish didn't understand the capitalist-Soviet connection, right? New Deal spokesmen have stirred up war hysteria into a veritable frenzy. The New Deal propaganda machine is working overtime to prepare the minds of our people for war who are already suffering from a bad case of war jitters. President Roosevelt, is the number one warmonger in America. Well, maybe number two. I thought Undermeyer may have been number one. And is largely responsible for the fear that pervades the nation, which has given the stock market and the American people a bad case of the jitters. I accuse the administration of instigating war propaganda and hysteria to cover up the failure and collapse of the New Deal policies with 12 million unemployed and business confidence destroyed. I believe we have far more to fear from our enemies from within than we have from without. All the communists are united in urging us to go to war against Germany and Japan for the benefit of Soviet Russia. I believe we have far more to fear from our enemies from within than we have from without. All the communists are united in urging us to go to war against Germany and Japan. For the, I'm sorry, I, I, I repeated that. Great Britain still expects every American to do her duty by preserving the British Empire and her colonies. The war profiteers, munitions makers, and international bankers are all set up for our participation in a new world war. Hamilton Fish was basically um, vociferating Adolf Hitler's sentiments. And in fact, at some point, we definitely have to get into Louis um, McFadden because McFadden talks about the Bolshevik banker connection. He accuses American bankers, or mostly Jews, running the Federal Reserve of bankrolling Japan to build them up into a war with Russia to weaken Russia. And then he, he points out that they drove a wedge between the Allies in the First World War. They financed Trotsky to get to Russia. They bankrolled the Bolsheviks. They helped create the new Bolshevik state. They overthrew the existing order in Russia, and they brought the first communist state into existence. So... I'm, I'm assuming McFadden and, and Hamilton Fish were probably colleagues in the Congress, weren't they? Yes. They were, they were both Republicans. And Hamilton Fish ultimately lost his seat because his own party turned against him, and they, um, they involved themselves in some gerrymandering, and they broke up his district, and he lost by a small margin. That shows you how, how much the Jews had already controlled the Republican Party at that time. If your own party's working against you in 1940, that's a bad sign, isn't it? Absolutely. But our country has always been locked into this two-party dichotomy, hasn't it? This false paradigm. 
at least since the 1920s. I, I, I don't know how old it is, but at least since the 1920s. That and probably before that, because Woodrow Wilson was elected um, the, the same way that Bill Clinton was elected. Roosevelt, Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson was elected by the introduction of a third-party candidate, right? That, that split the, I don't really want to say the conservative vote, it, it split the non-democratic vote. Roosevelt, Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt ran for president in, for the Bull Moose Party in 1912, and that assured Woodrow Wilson's victory. Well, over to Roosevelt got more. Um, I'm so, yeah, Theodore Roosevelt received more votes than William Taft, and Taft was on the uh, Republican ticket. And then, of course, there was Eugene Debs, the socialist, who got six percent of the vote, which is shocking. If it hadn't been for Theodore Roosevelt, though, it looks like Taft probably would have won. Uh, I believe, uh, and, and many comment, many historians believe that. Taft would have won if it weren't for Tito Roosevelt. On April 21st, Fish again spoke to the country over nationwide radio. Bear in mind this is 1939. It's months before Hitler invades Poland. It is the duty of all those Americans who desire to keep out of foreign entanglements and the rotten mess and war madness of Europe and Asia to openly expose the war hysteria and propaganda that is impelling us to armed conflict. What we need in America is a stop war crusade before we are far, forced into a foreign war by internationalists and interventionists at Washington who seem to be more interested in solving world problems rather than our own. In his radio address of the 26th of May, Fish stated, he, meaning Roosevelt, should remember that the Congress has the sole power to declare war and formulate the foreign policies of the United States. Now we know that's never been the case, right? The president has no such constitutional power. He is merely the official organ to carry out the policies determined by the Congress. Without knowing even who the combatants will be, we are informed almost daily by the internationalists and interventionists in America that we must participate in the next world war. Well, the combatants are the um, Jews and their pawns on one side versus whoever won't bow down to the Jews on the other side. Basically, and on the eighth of July, even even this early in, in in the game of you know modern American politics, we have presidents that instead of carrying out the legislation passed by the Congress, they're basically ruling by decree and acting like kings. And I, I think that we could probably trace it back to Lincoln. Lincoln really got that started. The whole executive order abuse, didn't he? I mean, prior to that, executive orders were very rare, and they, they were pretty much concise for a very specific purpose within the confines of the Constitution, and they, they were few and far between. The idea that the president can just rule from, you know, rule by decree from on high and have armed goons carry out his wishes, that's not very American, is it, Bill? But that's the way the presidency has been run for, for many decades now. So they, they refer to Hitler as a dictator who rules by decree thanks to the Enabling Act well, let us assume that Hitler is a dictator, which I won't grant since he was legitimately legally elected and appointed. If Hitler's a dictator because he rules by decree, well, what is Franklin Roosevelt, who tries to pack the Supreme Court and rules by decree? 
Well, well, he absolutely ruled by decree, right? Again, the media manipulates public opinion by slantedly reporting the news, right? The public doesn't know anything if it doesn't read it in the media. And that's been true probably since the 19-teens. So if you didn't read it in a newspaper or see it in a newsreel or hear it on the radio, it just didn't happen and it's not important. Well, well, basically, that's the prevalent attitude today in society. You know, if that happened, we would have seen it on TV. And if they see it on TV, they believe it. So we have 300 million Americans who, who basically um, have subscribed to the Holocaust re- religion of Judaism, right? Hmm. On July 8, 1939, Fish declared over the National Broadcasting Company radio network, if we must go to war... Let it be in defense of America, but not in defense of the munitions makers, war profiteers, communists, to cover up the failures of the New Deal or to provide an alibi for a third term. And, and I don't buy the idea that World War II was perpetrated to cover up the failures of the New Deal. I really don't. I believe that the Great Depression came to an end as a first as a necessary um, component of the desire for victory in a war, but mostly because it, it, it was a reward for the country enlisting in the war, for, for the popular opinion of the country being swayed into the camp of the Jews so that the Jews would be able to destroy National Socialist Germany. The end of the Depression, what was more or less orchestrated just as well as the beginning of it. That, that's my personal opinion. Of course, they, they would have to end it, though. I mean, you can't keep 30 million people out of work and keep all the factories closed if you want to produce weapons to send overseas and arm four other countries. Right. But they only ended it because the country was willing to go to war. It wasn't ended as a cover I mean, the Depression didn't end as a... The war didn't occur as a cover for the failures of the New Deal and the Depression. I think the, the, the Depression the depression was to prime America and get them to go along with turning America into a communist country. Well, well it, basically, it, it basically created an environment in the country, uh, a political environment, where the people were much more um, susceptible to the the false ideologies and rewards of socialism, right? There's no doubt. And a righteous, upright government could have gotten us out of the Depression on its own by smashing the Federal Reserve and chasing the Jews out. But we didn't have that. Well, well the way I see it, in, in the Great Depression and, and in the war years, the American people traded their faith in the living God for their faith in the government as God. And And ever since the Great Depression, the government has been the God of most of our people. And I've noticed ever since World War II, which saw 15 million men drafted and, and put in service, we've had a huge standing army. We've gone from a nation that was inherently distrustful of the military in a nation where you know, in, in 1910, if you told someone you were in the military, you wouldn't really garner any respect, and people would just think, oh, well, you couldn't make it in a, in a assembly line, you couldn't make it as a doctor, you couldn't make it in college, you couldn't make it as an engineer, so you went in the military. 
today we basically worship the military. We demand one of the largest standing militaries in the world, and we're, we're all too eager to give up our rights. If they want to put soldiers on the street, most people say, oh, those soldiers are there to keep us safe. They defend our liberty. They defend our freedom. America is in love with the standing army, isn't it? And it, it it was absolutely contrary to the ideals of the the founders of the nation. And that's not to disparage the um the, the service of those who are serving, but I think we should be clear on the fact that our founders did not want it this way, and their service is not consistent with what our nation was meant to be. We weren't supposed to have a, a million and a half men permanently under arms. No one has declared war upon us. We've not declared war upon anybody. We have not. We're not under threat of immediate foreign invasion. So there's no reason to have so many men in arms at any one time. We should have a large well, reserve. A standing army is the sign of a tyranny and, and stood for everything that the founders of the nation stood against. Absolutely. And the army is supposed to be comprised of the people mobilized in wartime, not professional soldiers who owe their livelihood to a government, because now they're all too willing to obey that government and tyrannize us because their livelihood is tied to their obedience. Well, well these, problems, the, these problems began with the first administration, right? Absolutely. I mean, the Whiskey Rebellion and, and right in the George Washington, in, in the administration of George Washington, we had these problems, right? Yes, we, we were talking earlier. I articulated the um, view that Washington essentially betrayed the revolution and that Jefferson would never have done those things that Washington engaged in. Well, well it's something I would like to give more study because it's something I haven't studied since um, – that may be freshman or sophomore year of high school, right? But but um, it 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 does merit investigation be, because the the whiskey rebellion and, and the idea of the 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 stamp, the the stamp act and things like that seem to immediately betray the ideals of the revolution. Yes, that is true. On the surface, they seem to do that. I would like to study them more. It's it's been a while since I've examined those things at all. On July 8, 1939, Fish declared over the National Broadcasting Company radio network, if we must go to war, let it be in defense of America, but not in defense of the munitions makers, war profiteers, communists, to cover up the failures of the New Deal or to provide an alibi for a third term. It is well for all nations to know that we do not propose to go to war over Danzig, power politics, foreign colonies, or the imperialistic wars of Europe or anywhere in the world. Well, Hamilton Fish had the right ideas, but he was in the wrong office, right? He wasn't the president. We should probably um, end this here. We're not going to get this paper finished tonight. We, we're going to need at least one more segment to um, finish presenting this paper, and, and we could return next week. And, and, and I, too, do not believe that World War II on the American side was just a cover for the failed Jew deal, or the New Deal, if you want to call it by its official name. I think that that's an argument that would be advanced by a mainstream, maybe a moderate conservative politician of the time, such as Mr. Fish, who may or may not understand the Jewish issue. And if he does, he probably doesn't want to articulate it too loud publicly. Because, you know, even back then the Jews had a lot of power, and it took a special individual who was willing to stand up against that to do so. But the, the New Deal was absolutely a failure. It was unconstitutional. It was just bad economics. Roosevelt was ruining the nation. But he didn't drag us in the war to cover up for that. Like you were saying, that the, the nation was being ruined 
to prime the pan for, for the war. The Jews dangle the carrot of a job in front of people, and of course there's the stick of the depression, so you can either get the carrot or the stick, and if you want the job, you better start making weapons for Britain and France, or put on a uniform and get on a ship. If Fish didn't, I, I would think, understanding all of the issues around Germany, and, and he basically vociferated the, the same policies that Adolf Hitler sought, right, well, which were the fair and just policies for Germany, even though Fish in these warnings did not mention Jews explicitly, he, he basically did mention uh, um, or, or infer the fact that he was talking about Jews, talking about the communists, talking about the bankers, talking about the munitions makers, talk, talk, all, all the Jewish interests are, are thrown into that the, the, the people that he says that the war was being fought in the interest of, and, and he just didn't come out and name the Jews. And when we but get into, he's a um, sitting congressman, and, and he's not really in a position where he could do that and be effective as a congressman. Well, look what happened with Theodore Bilbo, who came out against Jews and blacks and integration. He came out openly and denounced the Jews as profiteers, well poisoners, and skunks that would steal Bibles from hotel rooms. He actually called them that. And the um, he was a senator. He was elected multiple times from Mississippi as a Democrat, and they refused to sit him. He was elected as a senator, and it took the intervention of some several Democratic colleagues to actually get him seated because the Senate just said that he wasn't fit to sit with them, election or no election. And Bilbo, as late as, you know, on 42, 43, came out publicly and declared himself a Klansman. Well, well Melissa had, had the other day, just the other day, she posted on, on, on my page for me because I asked her to because she read it to me, and she actually passed me this quote from Senator Bilbo, right? And it doesn't really relate to the content of this program tonight, but since the name came up, I have to read the quote. Theodore Bilbo, in 1947, said, If our buildings, our highways, and our railroads should be wrecked, we could rebuild them. If our cities should be destroyed, out of the very ruins, we could erect newer and greater ones. Even if our armed might should be crushed, we could rear sons who would redeem our power. But if the blood of our white race should become corrupted and mingled with the blood of Africa, then the present greatness of the United States of America would be destroyed, and all hope for civilization would be as impossible for a Negroid America as would be the redemption and restoration of the white man's blood, which had been mixed with that of the Negro. Theodore Bilbo was probably ahead of his time. Absolutely, and he died in a hospital. What a shock. How come all, all of these men seem to die in hospitals, don't they? Well, well, real white patriots should probably avoid hospitals like the plague. And Huey Long was killed by his own bodyguards, or it appears he was anyway. And it just seems a lot of our people, patriots who, who know the score, they go into the hospital for a routine procedure, and then they wind up dead. If you, if you know who the Jews are, though, you'd have to know that historically all the apothecaries and surgeons have pretty much been Jews, haven't they? Yeah, you know, there's probably some value in emergency medicine, like I break a leg and you mm -hmm. put it in a plaster cast for me and reset it and, and it heals, right? Everything beyond that, and, and somebody else has said this lately to me, and, and, and of course it's true, 
It, it's just that he put it rather succinctly. Anything beyond emergency medicine is basically witchcraft. It's Sorcery. basically... Yes, it is. Americans don't see that, though, or they don't want to see it. Major proponents are the Jews. Oh, and that quote, was that from his booklet, Take Your Choice, Separation or Mongolization? I have a website for the quote. It's going to appear in a Saxon messenger. It's, it's, um, it's 100 Bla- Whites and Blacks, 100 Facts and One Lie by Roger Roots. All right, so we will pick up next week, and at some point in the future, we need to cover all these patriots from the 30s and 40s, like Bilbo, Louis McFadden. We, I, I found a great speech by Louis McFadden from June 10, 1932. It's about 20 pages long, discussing the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve has duped the entire nation and the government, and it's bankrupted itself and bankrupted the government and McFadden accuses them of bringing our nation to the verge of destruction. Well, well, the Jews had such a command over the media from the 1920s and, and 30s, and, and there's no outlet for this information at that time. Mm-hmm. Today, at least for the time being, we have the Internet, and we can compete with the Jewish media. Absolutely. We're, back then, if, if you were a senator and you wanted to make a radio speech and appeal for peace, you're not getting on the air. Absolutely not. You're not. If you have ideas like Theodore Bilbo or Louis McFadden, you're not. You're, your chances are you're not getting them into print, where any substantial number of people can see them. Although Bilbo was successful as a politician, he was a senator from thirty-five to forty-seven. Before that, he was a governor of Mississippi twice. He was lieutenant governor. So the people of Mississippi sure liked them. Well, well, right, but we're talking about Mississippi in the 1930s and 40s where, where, um, where, where, where the, the attitude is still small town and down home and people do business on a handshake and white men believe each other, right? It's a different world, right? It's not New York in the 80s where if you don't have a zillion dollar budget and, and major media behind you, you're never getting your message out, right? It's a totally different world. Absolutely. Okay, but that will end the program. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday night with Luke chapter 16 and next Saturday with part four of this segment on Franklin Roosevelt's instigation and basically his creation of World War II. Praise Yahweh. Good night. I want to say at some point in the near future, there will be some come out of her shows again, probably a, a, a several part series on the protocols of Greg Howard several shows of Boxer, and then I'm going to try to get someone from South Africa on to discuss the National Party treason and the South African political situation from the 60s to the 90s that resulted in the handover. So there'll be some shows on the horizon for people to look forward to. Thank you. Praise Alex. Praise Alex.